Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. All right. With that, I am going to hand the floor over to Mr. Joel McDermott, who will be answering the resolution in the affirmative. Mosaic civil laws are obligatory for civil governments today. Thank you. Just one insight onto vocab's uh, introduction. Uh, American vision is not an eyeglass place, but we are in the business of opening eyes. So keep that in mind. Mosaic civil laws are obligatory for civil governments today. The argument is simple. If the laws are just and they have not been rescinded by scripture explicitly or by some necessary deduction, then they're applicable. Not just applicable, but if they're just, they're obligatory. Because what is the alternative? If you take away what is just, you have what is unjust. What I'd like to do this morning or this evening, my hot time flies, is go through First Timothy, uh, beginning in chapter one, and make a few points on this chapter. I'll begin reading in chapter in verse three. Continue through verse eleven. Paul writes. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Amen and amen. Paul is charging Timothy not to listen and to avoid certain men who want to be teachers of the law, nomodidaskaloi, law professors, lawmen, and yet they want to talk about things like myths and endless genealogies and promote speculations rather than what is translated here in the SV as stewardship. 
That word in the Greek is oikonomos. It means the law of the house. It is the word from which we get our word economics. Don't listen to these guys that are messing with genealogies. Who in the world at the time was messing with genealogies? Well, there were some pagans that were doing it, but primarily it was Jews who were interested in the bloodline laws and the ceremonial laws and that in their wranglings and arguments about the Messiah. And more speculations and myths. In other words, he's talking about Judaizers in the church. And Paul says, don't listen to those guys. They don't even know what they're talking about, let alone what they're making confident assertions about. So does he throw out the entire law? No. He says, but you and I know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. You say, well, wait, well, Paul, that sounds like a circular argument to me. I mean, I want to know the standard for how to use the law, and you're saying it, use, use it lawfully. And in the Greek, one word is namos, and the other word is namimos. It's just the adverbial adjectival form of the same word. It's a circular argument. Paul, what are you talking about? Well, I think everybody here knows what he was talking about. He's just showing that this is a presuppositional argument, or at least a presuppositional standard. It's proving that Paul had done well and read his Van Til, and he had read Bonson, and so he was on the same page as we are. In all seriousness, the only way to use the law is not through speculations about genealogies and myths or whatever else these guys are talking about. The only way to use the law is according to the law. If you want to know what stands and what it means and how it applies, go read the law. And Paul tells Timothy, we know how to do that. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. Now, he's not talking across the board here. Obviously, the law has applications for Christians and for the righteous as pedagogical uses, as normative uses to direct, to direct us in what is right in Christian life. What is Paul talking about here is what theologians later might have called something like the civil use of the law. It's not laid down for the just but for the lawless. In other words, it doesn't just apply in the church. It applies outside the church. And disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. What's interesting about that list is Paul's not just talking about the law in general. Paul is not just quoting from the Ten Commandments. Paul is quoting directly from Exodus 21 on several of those points. And Exodus 21 is the judicial law. And saying that's how you use the law, lawfully. And then finally he says, you know what? When you use the law like this, it's according to the gospel. So there is no conflict. There is no accusation of civil Judaizing. There is no accusation of Judaizing in general. 
There's no accusation of failing to distinguish between different categories of the law. We can talk about those as far as distinction goes, but I want to know what the Bible says about how they apply. And when Paul wants to talk about using the law lawfully, he says the judicial laws apply, and they apply to those outside the church. So what have we learned just from this brief, very brief exegetical study? That God doesn't want us to focus on arguments over genealogies and what Paul elsewhere called the weak and beggarly elements of the law, which certainly were fulfilled in Christ. But he does want us to deal with stewardship, or in the NASB, that word oikonomos is translated, the administration of God. He wants us to deal with government, people. Self-government, family government, church government, civil government. We know that the law is good. We know that if you're going to use the law and it be good, you have to use it according to the law. It is a self-authenticating standard. You don't get to go outside and say, well, this law applies and that one doesn't because this one makes sure the people in my congregation make more money and this one would mean, well, that's too harsh. I don't want to have to say that in public because people don't like me. You don't get to impose a standard like that or any other human standard. You get to impose the standard that is self-authenticating in Scripture. And that includes creeds and confessions. Scripture triumphs over those as well. We must use the law to interpret the law. Law applies, we have learned, to the unrighteous and the lawless, not believers in this sense. Law is case law, coming from judicial law, not the moral law only, and that this is in accordance with the gospel. And so if, God, if, Christ, if Paul is saying that the judicials apply... What does that say about the penalties that go with the judicials? Do we get to make a distinction between those? If you do, where does Scripture say that? Where has Paul rescinded those? Where has the, the gospel, the New Testament, where has God anywhere rescinded those and say, well, the judicial categories apply here, but the penalties don't? The punishments that the civil magistrate has called as just punishments must be imposed. Where, or, or must not be imposed. Where is that in the Bible? I don't know, but in Romans 13, I see that the, the civil magistrate is called to punish evil. And that he is God's servant as he did this, as we talked about today. Well, if he's God's servant and the avenger of God's wrath, not his own, not the states, not the people's, then whose standard of wrath and punishment must he impose? And if he's going to punish evil, who defines what the evil is that gets punished? If you don't go to the judicial law, you don't have a biblical standard for that. But I look in Hebrews 2 and 2, and I see that it says, under that old covenant, every transgression received its just punishment. Every one. So who am I to say that, that any one of those is unjust unless God has come out and said, this one is gone, or this one no longer applies for this reason or whatever? They were just then, and there's no reason in the world that they're not just today. I'd like to read you a little story. 
In September of 1642, a man by the name of Thomas, I can't pronounce it, and I wasn't there to ask him, Granger, was the first person to be hanged in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He was a servant in Plymouth County. At the age of 16 and at the age of 17, or of 17, they're unclear, Mr. Granger was convicted of buggery with a mare, a cow, two goats, diverse sheep, two calves, and a turkey. According to the court records of his trial on the 7th of September, 1642, Granger confessed to his crimes in court privately to local magistrates and upon indictment publicly to ministers and the jury, being sentenced to death by hanging until he was dead, and he was hanged the very next day for his crime. Before Granger's execution, following the laws by which he was convicted, Leviticus 20:15, and if a man shall lie with a beast, he shall surely be put to death, and ye shall slay the beast. The animals involved were slaughtered before his face, thrown into a large pit dug for their disposal, and no use being made of any part of them. And the account of that incident is written in the journals of the governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, William Bradford. Question, was that penalty just? Was that penalty unjust? I would like to hear my opponent answer that question tonight. He has to answer, by what standard is it unjust? Or by what standard is it just? Because if God's law is just, then it is obligatory. But if it's unjust, you have to tell me why. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. J.D. Hall. You have 50 minutes for your opening statement. Answering in the negative, mosaic civil laws are obligatory for civil governments today. Thank you. Jesus Christ is king. I want to begin that way not only because it's true, not only because it honors God and gives him the rightful place in this debate, but because it is something which I would like to think, by the grace of God, we could all agree upon. Jesus Christ is king. But there are other matters as well, which, again, by God's grace, both the theonomist and those of us holding to a more historic and orthodox understanding of God's law can agree upon. So let me make these statements with no reservation. Let me make these statements with, uh, with firm conviction, and I pray that they are received by you with joy. The civil code that was given to the commonwealth of Israel is good. The civil code that was given to the commonwealth of Israel was righteous. The civil code that was given to the commonwealth of Israel is God-breathed. The civil code that was given to the commonwealth of Israel is thoroughly relevant and always has been to America and every other nation under the sun. The civil code given to the commonwealth of Israel uh, honestly provides laws that we should stop and consider and compare them to modern laws today that more times than not cater to human depravity. 
That's what we should stop and think about the civil code that was given to the commonwealth of Israel. In short, the civil code given to the commonwealth of Israel matters, and it matters tremendously. And finally, when asked the question, by what other standard? I say by God's standard, and by God's standard alone. However, it has been with some great despair on my part to see particularly young men and women call themselves theonomists because they simply agree with the statements that I just made, as though that in and of itself makes you a theonomist. My friends, that doesn't make you a theonomist agreeing with the statements that I just made. That makes you a Christian with a biblical worldview. The question is not, is the uh, civil code given to the commonwealth of Israel good? Is it positive? Is it wise? Can we learn from it? The question is, if the Mosaic civil code given to the commonwealth of Israel is obligatory. And the answer to that, historically, biblically, and covenantally, has always been and remains no. First, biblically, let me lay out the position. I want us to all understand what theonomy is. If Bonson's argument is correct which is that Jesus was teaching to us in Matthew 5 the basic theonomic supposition that, quote, every single stroke of the law must be seen by the Christian as applicable in this very age between the advents of Christ, Theonomy and Christian Ethics, page 82. If Gary North is correct that the Mosaic law is, quote, still to be enforced by the church or the state or both in Sinai strategy, page 242. If Rush Duny is correct that it is a serious error to say the civil code has been abolished, Institutes of Biblical Law, page 305. We're going to have to look to the scripture because we see a problem there, and that is all of that contradicts the confession that most of the people in this room claim that they uphold. At the end of the day, of course, the question isn't what the confession says, but the question is what says the word of God. But let me bring your attention to the confession, chapter 19, article 4. Because we see the Westminster divines divide God's law into three, civil, ceremonial, and moral. We see the civil code discussed in Article 4, pertinent to our discussion tonight. Here's what they wrote. To them also, speaking of the commonwealth of Israel, as a body politic, he gave them sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people. It expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any under now, further than the general equity thereof may require. It's not obligatory according to the Westminster. Now, Bonson claimed that it can flush with Westminster because he redefined the word general equity, one of many, many redefinitions of words which the onomists over the years have been very open about making. However, Rush Dooney, a little bit more honest, he says the confession at that point is guilty of nonsense, Institutes of Biblical Law, page 551. James Jordan said in the Journal of Christian Reconstruction, this category scheme is erroneous. So I find myself in a weird predicament as a Baptist holding the 1689 London Baptist Confession that I feel that I'm in more agreement on the Westminster than my opponent. Now, I would like to draw your attention to Exodus chapter 19, verse 24, through chapter 20, verse 17, because at the end of the day, it really is about what God's word has said. You probably know the narrative. The Lord spoke out of the fire. He gave commandments. He spoke them. He wrote them on tablets of stone. Which of God's laws, God's moral law, was treated this way? From the very beginning, as unique and special unto God, it is the Decalogue, a summary of God's eternal and immutable characteristics of righteousness, the demands of moral behavior, the foundations of the Judeo-Christian ethic that was written by the very finger of God in tablets of stone, Exodus 31:18. It was delivered by the very voice of God, the moral law. We see this repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. 
We see it again. God declares his Decalogue, and then he sends the people back to their tents, and God gives the civil code to Moses for later explanation. Clearly, it is the moral law that is the abiding centerpiece of God's law. And what was in the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies? The civil code? No, the moral law. The Bible distinguishes the cultic legislation from the moral law whenever it's listed. The moral law is always listed first. It's listed in distinction in places like Exodus 21 through 23. The civil code given later in Exodus 25. Uh, it's given in, in Leviticus, which is the handbook of the priests, but not to Deuteronomy. Not in Deuteronomy, which is to the people as a whole. And so we see why historic reform thought divides God's law into three. And it's because God's word does so in terms of how it was given, how it was expressed, how it was to be administered. Theonomists, though, as you are aware, tend to think of a twofold division. As a matter of fact, according to Bonson, to think of a division between the civil code and the, and the moral law, he says, is, quote, latent antinomianism. Theonomy and Christian Ethics, page 310. Now, this is done for a reason. It's because theonomists need to take passages relating to the abiding nature of the moral code that it existed and was enforced before the Sinaitic Covenant, and existing and enforced after the Sinaitic Covenant, and piggyback on the moral law, the civil code, to say, see, it's still enforced. It's still God's law because they refuse to see this distinction. But the challenge for Brother Joel, and indeed for all theonomists, is this. It's very simple. If nations today, outside the geopolitical boundaries of the commonwealth of Israel, if we're obliged to adhere to the exhaustive detail of Israel's civil code, then surely we can find nations in the Old Testament judged for the same thing. Not for violating God's moral law, but specifically the civil code. I want to see it. However, there's absolutely no place in Scripture where God judges the nations for not adhering to the civil code that was unique to Israel and as unique to Israel as Israel is unique and it's typological, redemptive, historical picture of the coming church. Now, Joel may do what Bonson has tried. I don't know. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6. Observe these laws carefully. This will show wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about these decrees and say, surely this is a great nation, wise and understanding, of which we must say, right, God has given those laws to Israel, as the passage says. But furthermore, where is the explicit command to implant in other nations the commonwealth laws for the civil governance that God gave specifically to the nation of Israel? Where is that? Now, you can find places in the Old Testament where God judges the nations, but it's for violating his moral law. And that's what it is for. Very evidently, it's the same moral law for which God's wrath is poured out from heaven upon all of the ungodliness of man, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It's the law that he was written, he's written upon their hearts. This is the law by which we're condemned, and this is the moral code which endures to this day, the moral law. That was summarized first by Ten Commandments with Jesus, excuse me, with Moses, and later by Jesus in Two Commands. I hope we'll deal some point tonight with Matthew 5.17. Bonson's peculiar exegesis is isolated foreign interpretation of one or two words, translated unlike any other use of the word in all of Scripture, but time is fleeting, so let me say this now. The presumption that, that I think is inherently monocovenantal that nothing has changed unless it's been specifically abrogated in the Old Testament. The problem with that is that it abandons almost entirely a Christocentric hermeneutic. 
A Christocentric hermeneutic is quite the opposite, asking rather, what has Christ's coming not changed? For starters, Christ fulfilled the law for us, Romans 10, uh, for, uh, ch- uh, verse 4, Acts chapter 13, verse 9. The guardian, the law, uh, the, the schoolmaster, the pedagogue, if you will, has now left, now that the Savior has come, Galatians 3, verse 24. The ministration of death has passed away, 2 Corinthians 3, 7. You see, here's the error, to not see these laws and Israel tied up in the typological foreshadow that becomes the church is actually an error of latent dispensationalism, refusing to see the church as the fulfillment of Israel. My friends, Israel's civil code was given to Israel. The United States is not spiritual Israel. Theirs may be an American vision, but it's not a biblical one. The church is the multinational, global, non-governmental, non-civic living body of regenerate believers. We're spiritual Israel. Not any number of geopolitical units or body politics. To not see Israel as a typological shadow fulfilled in the church, again, that's an error. Now this is why the civil code is applied in the New Testament given to the church. We must use the law, and as Paul told young Pastor Timothy, we must use it lawfully. So the question is, how did Paul use the civil code? Let's look at that. How did he use the civil code? First Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, he quotes the civil code. A laborer is worthy of his wages. Quote from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13. Don't muzzle the ox. It's a quotation from the civil code, Deuteronomy 25.4. Not in reference to the state's obligations, but in reference to the church's obligation because the church is spiritual Israel. He does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when he tells the church, purge the evil person from among you. What's that a reference to? It's a reference to the civil code. Deuteronomy 13.5, 17.7, Deuteronomy 17.12, Deuteronomy 21.21, dealing with the purge of the offender of the civil code, but he applies it to the state, and then he says this, God will judge those on the outside. Not the state, God. It is the church that uses the civil code, as the divine said in the Westminster Confession, not in exhaustive detail, but in the general equity. You see, Christ has come. Israel has become that spiritual nation of the redeemed. It's for this reason that Calvin writes this. He says, But because I have undertaken to say with what laws a Christian state ought to be governed, this is no reason why anyone should expect a long discourse concerning the best kinds of laws. Anybody here had a long discourse lately on the best kinds of laws? Anyone? This would be endless and would not pertain to the present purpose and place. I would have preferred to pass over this matter in utter silence. Again, I agree with Calvin. I'd like to pass over this matter in utter silence. He says, if I were not aware that here many dangerously go astray. For there are some who deny that a commonwealth is duly framed which neglects the political system of Moses. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe my opponent is a fine man. But Calvin speaks of him. There are some who would say the nation is not duly framed unless it takes the laws of Moses. Calvin says, let other men consider how perilous and seditious this notion is. It will be enough for me to have proved it false and foolish. And he goes on to say something else. He says, in the meantime, let no one be concerned over the small point that ceremonial and judicial laws also pertain to morals. 
For the ancient writers who taught this division, although they were not ignorant that these two latter parts had some bearing upon morals, still, because these could be changed or abrogated while morals remained untouched, did not call them moral laws. Those ceremonial practices are indeed properly belonged to the doctrine of piety inasmuch as they kept the church of the Jews in service in reference to God, reverence to God, and yet could be distinguished from piety itself in like manner in the form of their judicial laws, although it had no other intent than how to best preserve that very love which God has enjoined by eternal law had something distinct from that precept of love. Therefore, as ceremonial laws could be abrogated while piety remained safe and unharmed, so too, when these judicial laws were taken away, the perpetual duties and precepts of love could still remain. My friends, I don't mean to appeal to history, but as Reformed Christians, it's our history. I don't mean to appeal to authority in pointing out what Calvin and the divine said, but for most of us in this room, in part, it is our authority. It's not the infallible rule of faith and practice. There's a reason why the law is divided this way, and more alarmingly, there is a reason why there are some who would say it's an artificial distinction, civil and moral. And I'd say, I don't think the law that was placed in the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies is an artificial distinction. It's real, it's abiding, and it's eternal. Thank you. Thank you, J.D. Do you guys know the test of a real debate if there's a cross-examination? This debate has some cross-examinations. My job is to maintain order and decorum during the whole debate, but let me give you guys a rundown of what we ask, expect, and require for the cross-examination piece. No browbeating. You got to let the other guy answer a reasonable length. You got to let the other guy give a reasonable qualification to the answer. No stalling, no dodging, no filibustering, no refusing to answer, no belittling, no insulting. But we know that's not going to happen. So this now begins a cross-examination where Joel will have seven minutes to ask JD some questions. You guys ready for this part? I am. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, thank you. You read that list of rules, man. I thought, wow, uh, who wrote that? Because that's, that's stuff, and then I realized I wrote it. So, goodness. Um, do you agree with Calvin's view of baptism? I do not. Do you agree with the Westminster Confession of Faith on baptism? I do not. So do you consider them erroneous on those issues? I consider them to have errors in those issues. That's correct. Issues. Okay, thank you. Is it possible that the confession or Calvin has errors in other areas as well? It's possible. Thankfully, though, it's not my confession, it's yours. If you, if you take the parallel version, virtually parallel, in the London Baptist Confession, which you exegeted the Westminster Confession basically to be parallel how you right. exegeted the London Baptist right. Confession, is it possible there are errors there as well? Uh, I hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, and to keep my credentials um, and street cred, I'm not going to point out where I think the errors are in the 1689 Confession. Um, but to answer your question, most truthfully, no, I think that it's, it's, fact, it's an accurate you, uh, statement of faith. In fact, do both of those confessions not say that popes and councils can err? Sure, sure they can. Okay. So by what standard are we judging these things? 
you know, I said uh, while I was speaking, it's important to point out what the confessions say, particularly if you claim to hold it. But as I specifically said, it is the scripture that is the only infallible rule Good. of faith and practice. Good. Awesome. Yeah. Um, you said that the view of the threefold distinction and the view of biblical law that you were discussing was, quote, more historic. That is correct. Okay. Uh, you quoted Calvin and the Confessions as part of that. Correct. Uh, are you familiar with William Perkins' view? I'm not. You could fill me in if you want to use your CX. Oh, I'm just asking a yes or no, no question. Uh, are you familiar with Thomas Cartwright's view of the Westminster Confession of the distinctions and more and general equity? No. Are you familiar with the views of Franciscus Junius? Nope. J. Uh, J. Heinrich Alting? Nope. Johannes Polyander? Nope. Wilhelm Zepper? Nope. Francis Turretin? Nope. Samuel Bolton? Nope. Daniel Caudry? Nope. Herbert Palmer? Nope. Samuel Rutherford? Yes. Are you thoroughly familiar with Samuel Rutherford? I am. Okay. Maybe we could talk about that later. That'd be good. John Goodwin? No. Thomas Hall? No. No. William Googe? No. How about the early Reformed Baptists, such as Thomas Harrison? Uh, the Reformed Baptist view of the, con the Westminster Confession? Well, of, of the concept of the threefold division of the law and its applicability by modern civil governments, and particularly the general equity clause. No. Okay. So any of, the, is any of them you could mention, for example, Henry Jesse? I'll just give all the names you say yes or no. John Carew, Colonel Oxtell, Henry Jesse, William Kiffin, Hansel Knollis, Spillsbury, Christopher Blackwood, or Benjamin Keach? Nope. Okay, thank you. Uh, do you still think that you're confident in saying that your view is more historic than mine? I have a confession that backs me up. You have the opinions, apparently, of some individuals. Do you have a confession, sir? And you're putting your opinion up against the opinions of all these men who wrote those documents. Uh, I have the opinions, and I could be happy to document for you, of many of those who wrote the confession. More importantly, I have the confession itself, which says what it says. According to your interpretation? According to its plain spoken words. Also, um, we can look at, say, for example, Fisher's Catechism, uh, which came out of the Westminster Confession, um, and what Fisher's Catechism defined as the moral law um, in juxtaposition to the civil and ceremonial, a catechism created from the confession that backs up my view, not yours. One. Do you have a, do you have a catechism I don't know about? No, I'm saying I'm talking you have one person's commentary or what you're talking about. The catechism. It's a it was a pretty broadly used catechism. Okay, it's okay. called Fisher's Are catechism. Are you familiar with Thomas Ridgely's commentary on the Westminster Larger Catechism? I'm not. Okay, so we could sit here back and forth all day and make lists of who agrees with me and who agrees with you, but ultimately the standard is Scripture. We agree with that. Uh, sure, oh. sure. I think it would be wise to discuss the confession itself considering it is the confession. I mean, you can turn to, say, for example, Tom uh, uh, Cotton and, and say, well, this was illustrative of the views of, uh, of the Puritans, but we would need to look at the system of laws that the Puritans created to determine whether or not they took his views into account. I can always find people in history that are stray. The question is, what did they create? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's all right. see the time. I thought your child was misbehaving on the front row. Yeah, that's not unlikely. Yeah, it basically was. All right. <laughs> um, you said that Theonomus holds to a twofold division of the law. 
Well, Bonson said that uh, if you uh, divide the moral and the ceremonial, or rather the civil, it's latent antinomianism, correct? So, Did he qualify that anywhere? You know, as I think I said, maybe I didn't, but it was in my manuscript, uh, I have heard Theonomists say, we believe in a threefold distinction of the law, no, 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 I just division of the Johnson law. Did qualify that anywhere? Uh, no, not well enough, because when we look at what he has presented in the use and definition of the term God's law, it is a practical denial that the law can be divided. A practical denial. So he himself didn't deny it. Your, your, your estimation of it was His entire denial. theology denies a threefold distinction in the law. And one okay. thing that we see... If, in, let me ask you this. If sure. Bonson came out directly and said that I do not hold to a twofold distinction, I hold to a threefold distinction, I would, would not you believe still him. say That's that you correct. would call him a liar? Uh, I would say I've read Theonomy and Christian Ethics, and it's built upon the entire supposition that any division between the three forms of law is arbitrary and minimal at best. So you would say at that point you understand Bonson better than Bonson did? I would say Bonson and other Theonomists, uh, in order to build a movement, have pretended as though they're a part of a particular family. So we're all deceptive liars then? That's what you're saying? I'm not calling anyone a deceptive liar, but I'm saying Theonomy and Christian Ethics, the entire system denies a real and true division between the moral and civil and ceremonial law. Because, brother, when you talk about God's law, you mean civil and moral. And again, I think it's odd that you don't include... don't tell me what I mean. You don't include ceremonial. I've listened to every single thing of yours that I feel that I can listen... that that I've seen, uh, both watching video and audio. I've read every book that you've ever written. That is the time. Well, you should let him finish his thought. That was my thought. All right. All right, that is the first part of our cross-examination. Everyone, let your mind soak. Let's let these brothers get reset. And then, J.D., you have seven minutes to ask Joel some questions. The floor is yours. Uh, Joel, Bonson calls Matthew 5.17 the locus classicus text in relation to Jesus' teaching on the law. Um, Without having to take time to explain to everyone else essentially what Bonson taught in relation to Matthew 5.17, would you say that you were in agreement? That we're what? Were you in agreement? I would say I'm in general agreement with him, yes. Okay. So that uh, fulfilled could be translated, rightly so, um, to establish or confirm, correct? It could possibly be translated to that, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I, I would say that uh, that corresponds with Paul in Romans saying that we establish the law. I think it's, it's generally the same concept. Okay. Um, here's, here's my question. Uh, the word used 17 times in Matthew, uh, plerao, is it used uh, to convey the meaning of establish or confirm any of those times I'm besides not, Matthew 5:17? I'm not familiar with that, actually. There's okay. some, I've heard it both ways, actually. Vern Poitras did a fairly rigorous critique on that view and held Bonson to that standard, and I don't remember. I thought Bonson actually had counterexamples, but it's been a while since I actually looked at okay, that. Okay, well, being, being such an important text, at least you know, uh, to Greg Bonson and the book and the movement in general, uh, I'd ask, can you think of anywhere in the Scripture, I don't want to limit it to Matthew, where plerao would mean um, established or confirmed as opposed to fulfilled. Not off the top of my head. Okay. 
All right. But I mean, that would be something I wanted to study. But I, but you call it a crucial. You call it as such an important text. I would say it's not a crucial text. Okay. Um, we see Jesus say in the Locus Classicus text. Um, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's actually in verse 20, not verse 17, as I'm sure you're aware. Let me ask you, um, does your righteousness, Joel, exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Yes. Okay. How does your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? Because Christ has imputed his righteousness to me. Very good. Good answer. Here's what Bonson said. Here's what Bonson said. Page 91, paragraph 2 of Theonomy and Christian Ethics. Why must one practice and teach details of God's law? Because then your righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Would you agree or disagree? I would want to read the full context first and see what he was actually saying before I said I agreed or disagreed. Right, okay, so let's think through that then. Matthew 5, 17, the law uh, is still in force. Every jot, every tittle, interpreting it the way that Bonson does. And then Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. If your righteousness is imputed to you by Jesus, isn't it because Jesus fulfilled the law for oh, you? absolutely, yes. Okay. So Jesus fulfilled the law, plerao, it would not mean, therefore, he came to establish and confirm the law. Not necessarily. No. So that word... No, I'm saying that's not necessarily true. It, you're going to have to flesh that out for me a little bit. I'll give you a little bit of time. How is it, how does the word mean Jesus fulfilled it, yeah. and at the same time also mean, as Bonson translates the word or interprets the word, uh, to establish and confirm, thereby saying, you are to follow this in exhaustive, quote, exhaustive detail. Can you earn righteousness through following the exhaustive detail of the law? Oh, absolutely not. Okay, very good, very good. Next question for you, Joel. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, 1 through 11, tells us that if anyone has caused pain, um, he's caused it not to me, but in some measures not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to him, forgive him, and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. It's teaching um, that if someone sins uh, in a certain way, they should be brought back uh, into the church, if they're repentant, they can be restored. Now, I listened to... I'm sorry, could you give me the reference again, please? Yeah, that would be Second Corinthians chapter 5. 5, verse what? Uh, verses 5 through 11. Right. I listened to your um, 6 CD, 7 CD set, whatever, I ordered from uh, American Vision um, on politics. I don't know if you... You probably have a bunch of those. But here's what you said. You said that you believe, and as a matter of fact, that was the title of the lecture, I believe, One Law, Two Kingdoms. Is that correct? Okay. Yes, I remember that. Ring a bell? Okay. There's one law, two kingdoms. Okay. The way that God has defined and built the two kingdoms, will they ever be at odds with one another? Are they opposed? Are they opposed to one another? I don't. It depends on how you define them, I suppose. I suppose if, to answer your question. Well, I listen to your lecture. I know I, how I, you I, define I, them. I, so I, I understand the distinction between what ought to be according to God's law okay. and what is in history. Well, you know, so those are two, those are often at odds with each other. Right. The scholars and commentaries all suggest that who it's referring to in Second Corinthians is the same offender in First Corinthians chapter five. The one it's the precipitating reason for which Paul wrote his letter to the church at Corinth. Uh, this is a capital offense, um, adultery in the Mosaic Code. 
if the post-millennial reign of Christ, uh, theonomic, neo-mosaic, uh, theonomic theocracy is built, how can the church restore this one if he is handed over to the civil magistrate to be put to death? And are then the two kingdoms of God opposed violently to one Man, another? I just think there's so many assumptions loaded in that question, Jordan. I mean, first of all, you're assuming it's the same guy that they're talking about. We have no evidence okay. whatsoever that's the case, in, it, in which okay. case you're not relying on the standard of Scripture, you're relying on the standard of the commentaries you've read that suggested this. Okay, let's take so. it out of the realm of hypothetical then. Okay. All right. if, I mean, it's fine. If you want to disagree with like, virtually all of the commentaries, that's fine. But let's say, hypothetically, it is someone who has committed adultery. Would your church restore that person uh, in the theoretical neo-mosaic theocracy that's well, coming. And that would be the other assumption, that if it was a sin like that, that that would be a person that could be restored in the way it's talking about in Second Corinthians. So, I mean, that would be an assumption I wouldn't agree with. But in, to answer so, your question directly, if a person committed adultery and it was, they were convicted in a court of law under two witnesses and the victim chose the maximum penalty, then this, they would be put to death. This couldn't be followed then, is that correct? Yeah, but I don't know that that's talking about that kind of that type of sin. That is the time. Are you finished with thought, Joel? Yeah, I'm done. Okay. Uh, Joel, yeah. <laughs> Joel. Uh, well, because you're... That's one. fine. I can, I can go on without that. All right. Uh, Cross-examination for the first segment is done. Uh, this will be the last part of the first segment, the final rebuttal here. Uh, Joel McDermott, you have 12 minutes max to give uh, the final rebuttal. Again, the resolution, Mosaic civil laws are obligatory for civil governments today. Joel. I promise I'm going to make that step every time without falling. Well, we've heard a lot about creeds and confessions from my opponent today. We've heard a whole lot about particular people uh, who held a view different than me. We held a view about Calvin. Now, I, I trust J.D. Hall when he says he went and read everything that he could possibly read from me on this topic. And yet, if he's quoting that particular passage from Calvin against me, I don't know how in the world he missed my Ph.D. dissertation on that topic that went through the entire history of it the socio-political setting, and if he would have uh, followed that, he might have seen that his own argument against us, that we are, for example, uh, making an artificial distinction for the purpose of allowing ourselves room in the discussion to appear orthodox. Well, if you're not following scripture standard, if you're following historical standards and confessional standards, how do you know that the same thing is not what those guys did to begin with? How do you know they didn't create that distinction in order so that they didn't have to follow those laws? So that when certain people piped up and said, hey, the Bible says this is God's standard of judgment. But that, that standard imposes severe financial penalties on the nobles, and the clergy at the time were all in the employ of the nobles. That sounds like a recipe to make a, a fine distinction to get out of the law to me. So how can Jordan prove that that's not the case? By the same standard, he can't. And in fact, by the same standard, I can prove the otherwise much more easily. If you want to go by the traditional classical distinction, fine, that's up to you, but you're not following Calvin, you're following Aquinas. 
And Aquinas got half of his distinctions uh, and discussions from Aristotelian thought. So once again, we're back to the question, aren't we? By what standard? Is it God's standard of justice in, in the Bible? Or is it some form of man's standard? We heard a whole lot about these, these things in his talk. What we did not hear about was any answer to the questions that I asked from Paul's letter to Timothy. Why is the law good? Why does it apply to unbelievers, the unrighteous? Why does it apply from the case law? We didn't hear any answers to that. We heard a discussion about the centrality of the moral law for the mere fact that it was written on stone and put into the Ark of the Covenant. Well, when they, uh, of course, that happened on Sinai, and then Moses gave the book of the law. That was, again, republished in Deuteronomy. Go read the chapter. And when they do it in Deuteronomy, they put the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, and they take the book of Deuteronomy and put it in a special case and put it right next to it. So if the place where you put the copy of the law is our standard, we're not much far apart. But again, that's not what it is. God revealed his standards of justice. It was not particular to Israel in many cases. In some cases, it was. And we all need to understand that. That's why I read off that list of names. I was not trying to sound haughty or arrogant or more learned than anybody, but almost all of those names, certainly some of the Reformed Baptists that were, but certainly all of the divines that I read from Westminster and all of the Dutch divines from the Scholastic era, all of them made a distinction between those Mosaic judicials which were purely pertaining to Israel and those that were so tied to the moral law that they continued. And the language in the Westminster Confession is written specifically to do that. You notice when, George, uh, when uh, uh, Jordan read it to you, he emphasized one part of that. Not obliging any other today. Any further than the general record he may require. <clears throat> they're not obliging. And he came back and made that point. See, they're not obliging. Well, if you read the rest of the sentence, it gives you the distinction you need to understand that. Not obliging any other today any further than the moral equity thereof will require. The phrase moral equity was invented essentially in this discussion in the English by William Perkins. He was the teacher of most of the Westminster divines. And he distinguished between general equity, which is laws in the judicials that have moral components and apply throughout the world, cross boundaries, not just to Israel, everyone. That was general equity, because the equity of the law was not just for Israel, it was generally for everybody. And there was that subset of per, that pertained to the, specifically the land of Israel, temple rights, things of that nature, uh, jubilee laws, seed laws. Those were peculiar to the people of Israel, and those they called particular equity, because those were particular to the people of Israel. So see, you can dodge the scriptural questions all you want, but if you run to the Westminster Confession, you still fall into the lap of theonomy. And you call Bonson a peculiar interpretation, it exposes nothing but ignorance. Because the guys that wrote that document made that distinction of general equity based on views that were almost identical to Greg Bonson's. And in fact, the covenanter tradition today, with which us theonomists often have considerable overlap and dialogue, although not entirely, are the ones that go back and find all these distinctions. They know the history of it. 
They've read the minutes of the Westminster Confession. They know the guys that were on the committee that drafted that part of the confession. They know what they taught in their seminaries. And they know what distinctions they made. And they were almost identical to theonomists. There are very minor differences. And the truth is, the London Baptist Confession, uh, there are several people following it that, will, that were not much uh, different. So, and in fact, it also, uh, it also makes a difference which one of the London Baptist Confessions you're reading. Are you reading the original that says the general equity of the judicials is of moral use only? Or are you reading the later edition that changed it to say they're of modern use only? which opens the door wide open to the same theonomic view as the Westminster Confession. And that just so happens to be the, the version that got picked up by Charles Spurgeon when he did his popularized version. He said it's of modern use, not merely moral use, but modern use. And that was the version that got published when J.D. Hall published his version. And I can make the case that that opens the door to theonomy just as easily. But nevertheless, the confession is not our standard. In the same way that when you want to throw the confession in my face, I come back and say, well, why don't you accept its view of baptism? Well, because I think Scripture teaches otherwise. Well, even if I thought the confession was teaching contrary to me, I would simply say, I think the confession, I think the Scripture teaches otherwise. Because that's what matters. What matters is why Paul went to the judicial laws, why Paul said it applies to unbelievers. Why Hebrews says that every transgression is just. Why God calls out and says every one of his judgments is just. In Psalm 19, God makes the same point about his judgments. Psalm 19, verse, uh, beginning in verse 11. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.